Hello, everyone. Jamie here. I just wanted to let you all know that this conversation was recorded as a follow-up to the Open Science Roundtable discussion that I had with Brian Kopitz, Michael Eisen, and Alexandra Elbakian. Um, this conversation is just a one-on-one -on -one discussion between me and Brian to cover some of the aspects of the open science discussion that we felt were missed in the original roundtable. Um, if you have not yet listened to the roundtable discussion, you can find that on the website at inplainenglishpod.org, and you can look for the open science roundtable episode. With that out of the way, on to the discussion with Brian Kopitz. Hello, everyone. I'm back with uh, Brian Kopitz recording a little addendum to our live stream conversation on Monday. Um, I wanted to do this because I feel like some of the perspectives that he brings as an early career researcher didn't make it through in the live stream. So I kind of wanted to go over those in more of a one on one format. So, Brian, thanks for joining me again for this. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I wanted to start out with, because there was some conversation that implied that it was easy or trivial to like stick to one's like principles in terms of like publishing and supporting open science. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why this is still a conversation is because it is difficult and challenging. And so I wanted to open up with you talking more about like, what are some of the challenges as an early career researcher to being able to like publish in open access journals. Yeah, so I think one of the challenges is that you, you know, you still operate in a space in which others may not have that same viewpoint, others that are making grant decisions or hiring decisions. So I, I think it's really important to, to, to take that into account that yes, if a hundred of us decide to just do it, that, you know, you can still be at a disadvantage to the thousands of people that have decided not to. And without kind of a, a, a systematic plan um, going forward. I think, you know, there's lots of people that want to do it, but we don't want to be the first ones to, to stick our heads out of the hole, right? Yeah, for sure. And you also, um, at least in, in like discussions with me, and I don't know how much this came through in the live stream, but you talked about like taking trainees, like career goals into consideration as well. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I think the, the same challenges arise at, at all of these kind of uh, early career stages that if you're, you know, looking for a, a, a postdoc in a certain lab and, and you know, you're competing, you know, this certain PI might have 100 applicants and, you know, that if you're pre-screened against papers only in certain journals, you might miss the cut without ever really getting a chance. You know, that, that makes it challenging, right? You, you still have to play within the rules of the system to some degree, even though you might disagree with them. And I think those rules of the system need to also change um, in order to kind of support um, a larger movement uh, towards open access for all. Yeah, I think it's a little bit naive, maybe, to think that things can change overnight when there is such like prevailing headwinds that are you know, keeping things moving in the direction that they're moving. One thing that I had been thinking about after the recording or the live stream on Monday was the vested interest of journals in their continued existence. Do you have any insight into like, you know, the political or like economic activity of journals to like, and uh, people who work at these journals to like maintain the current status quo? Yeah, I mean, well, the the margins 
for publishing from these are so huge that of course they're going to want to, right? I think maybe it was mentioned, it was brought up briefly that like there's lobbying efforts, obviously, by like the people who run cell nature science. I don't think it was brought up that at least one of those journals is publicly traded. So not only do they have their own profit motive, but they also have shareholders that they want to generate profit for. Like there's a lot of a lot of money behind keeping the industry of publishing afloat as it currently stands and against changing it in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, definitely. As with anything, like the profit motive in publishing needs to not exist. Yeah. It's very, I mean, like the, the, to take a like 50,000 foot view, it's one of those many, many, many things in this country and the world where it's like, you've taken something that is a public good and important for everybody's lives and you've put it behind a paywall with an incentive for people to make money off of it. Yeah. I think a challenge, or, you know, one of the, the issues there too, is that those, you know, certain journals with a certain level of prestige in a way actually dictate the direction of science and, and sometimes maybe for the better and, but, but maybe not, right. That, that it's not necessarily scientists always choosing what to do. Right. I think there was some poll that, greater than 50% of scientists uh, were asked if they could work on anything they want. More than 50% of them said not what they were currently doing, but that was the most relevant for career advancement, right? Yeah. Funding, things like that. And if, you know, shifting your work into a higher profile area, right, that that a lot of people are publishing in and it is a hot or sexy area, that will garner more citations, it'll garner more clicks, right, online. And that really drives incentive for more of those papers. Now, I think that diminishes research into really important fundamental areas, right? Where you don't know where the next breakthrough is gonna come, right? If everybody's just studying the same gene, and I think there's another study that, that, that my colleague Vijay Semeneni mentioned to me that it's like, we study less than 0.01% of genes, right? We all study the same genes with known functions and keep coming up with new things that they're doing, but there are so many things out there that are just unknown, but you know, difficult to maybe launch into because it may not fit a narrative, right? You don't know where that's gonna go and, and due to publication biases or, or funding issues, and that's a whole nother topic that it, it's challenging to branch into those areas too. And you know, this is, again, like taking a step back one of the reasons why the project to like advance open science is so important is that, you know, a lot of these reforms would also have an impact on like, you know, maybe you can, you know, venture out and do some other research that's not, you know, what all of the like big journals want to see because yeah. I mean, I'll use an example. So, I mean, one of the areas that we work in is is the development of optogenetic tools. And so that's light-sensitive proteins that we can express in neurons and control their activity, right? But that fundamental demonstration in the early 2000s was built off of decades of work. People studying, you know, obscure bacteria and algae species just 
why is that purple pigment purple, right? And, and, and the field wouldn't have been able to jump off from that if we didn't have decades worth of fundamental basic science, right? Mm -hmm. And this was done at a time when those, so studies were conducted out of pure curiosity, right? It wasn't necessarily, maybe, maybe not, I wasn't around then, but <laughs> out of that same fear of, is this going to get funded? Uh, is this going to end up in a big journal, right? It was, huh, that's interesting. I wonder why it's like that. I wonder what it does. And, and so I worry then about, I mean, science is always incremental, right? And, and the future of science is built on, on what we're doing now. And I think that that the, the future of science could end up hurting because of some of these uh, uh, current trends. So Yeah. I mean, to bring it into the realm of patient care, there was a excellent panel at the Society for Neuroscience Conference, which is the largest neuroscience conference in the world and brings in, you know, uh, researchers from all over the world to talk about like research in every field of neuroscience. It's honestly overwhelming. But there was this great panel that was about like the role of like patient voices in neuroscience research. It was specifically focusing on spinal cord injuries. And one thing that one of the panelists said is like, there are all of these studies in animal models, like mice and rats and like what have you that are about like, how can we help like, spinal cord neurons like regain function regrow do whatever like how can we partially reverse this in animals and they all look super promising right mm -hmm. it all looks awesome and basically none of that has translated to the clinic now there's a lot of different reasons for that one of which is that mice and rats are not tiny humans mm -hmm. but <laughs> you know possibly another reason for that is that there isn't an incentive to kind of branch out and try new things and that like also not having open science kind of hampers collaboration now also there's the like issue of not involving these communities in these conversations in the first place to find out like what they want from the research so it's obviously multifactorial but yeah. there are real reasons why we kind of need to rethink how we're doing this <laughs> and yeah. so that we don't stagnate yeah, and not not conducting a study for the sake of getting a paper, right? Not yeah. setting out in that way, but but well, yeah. Like if you take a, and this is you know an, another thing that I've heard from a friend is like that they were doing a study that it was on like opioids in some fashion. I forget exactly what, and they were doing this study, and they had like such pressure from their PI to like find some some kind of specific result. And she's like, this makes no sense. Like we're just trying to get a paper. But the upshot of this is like opioid use disorder, opioid overdoses, like addiction, all of this like impacts real people. And we're just trying to like tease the numbers in just the right way that we get a result so we can publish a paper. That's not helping anybody. Yeah, we can pat ourselves on the back and yeah post it on Twitter and talk about that. But yeah, it, it, that, that is a big challenge. Yeah, and I think in the conversation it was brought up that while these journals have a voice, right, that, that they're lobbying, that one of the points that was brought up is that the NIH doesn't know that P 
people want this. And I, I don't think that's necessarily true. There might not have been a concerted effort, you know, for lobbying from individual scientists, but I think there is a general voice that, that NIH acknowledges that people want this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this is an instance where maybe some of these organizations uh, that are um, for open access, um, this could be an opportunity for them to step in, right, and, and put some of their power behind uh, uh, a, a lobbying initiative. Um, to to advocate on behalf of all of these individual scientists who maybe don't have as strong of a voice. Yeah, I thought that was a little bit weird to suggest that there wasn't a voice or a prevailing movement for open science. You know, not mentioned were a lot of great efforts for open science, like the peer community in journals, which allow you to publish preprints um, on this uh, website that's specific to your uh, field of research and get feedback from other pe- like researchers in that field. You know, also not mentioned uh, was anything about movements for open source code, such as like movements to put all of your code up on GitHub or similar repositories. Um, so I think this is an instance where maybe, and I don't know what's necessarily driven it, but but within NIH now, they're for all new um, our level grant submissions, there's kind of a data sharing plan. Uh, also, f- this existed before for grants above a certain um, annual budget. But there is a push now to make, we all have to have data plans um, and, and make this available. And since that has been pushed down from the NIH, institutions, and I can only speak to WashU right now, but, but the uh, IT infrastructure uh, has been working to create uh, ways to support researchers for hosting this data, making it available. Now, that's far from worked out right now. But I think even in the short time from that mandate coming down, universities were able to kind of quickly implement strategies um, in their own space to, to deal with these. Right. So there is, there is like movement in that direction. There is like ability to implement these things when people kind of get together and say like, this is something that we need to do. Well, I think this is a case where, yeah, when it was mandated by NIH, mm-hmm. researchers and, and institutions didn't have a choice. And I think a lot of people are happy to have that that was able to get universities on board. Maybe they were doing it on their own or on their own dime, right? And, mm-hmm. and now that they're supposed to be funding, maybe that helps with those things. And I think uh, Michael brought up a really good point that if this if something like this is mandated by NIH, researchers and institutes, if they're forced to comply, they will. Um, in order to continue to get funding. So, you know, that's an example of, of where NIH could really help in, in, in kind of shaping um, open access publishing as well. Right, yeah. It's like, you know, some of it is going to be these sort of top-down, like things that mm-hmm. are shaped by the government, by NIH, um, by memos like the, the Biden White House memo about having publicly... Uh, funded science be publicly available. There's also efforts that I don't think got enough discussion that can come from the bottom up that can build up from like individual labs and then influencing departments and like institutions from bottom up. So Mm -hmm. um, did you want to talk a little bit more about like how you envision that and are trying to like make that a reality sort of within your own sphere? Yeah. I mean, I think that's one thing I I probably echoed um, is that you know, in some, in a lot of ways, you know, as a PI, you can only control the things kind of within your sphere. And so that's why we try to always have these conversations. 
every situation might be different. Every every paper uh, and every trainee's goals might be a little bit different. And what I want to do is, yes, like it'd be great if we could make everything open access, but we have to acknowledge and talk about all of the difficulties with that and when it makes the most sense and when, you know, you might have to go a different route. And so I think starting with what you can control within the lab is is an important first step. And everybody's going to do it a little bit differently. And that, like you said, can help build momentum across similar like-minded researchers within a department and even maybe over time shift the culture of a department into being more supportive of those things as others are on board and we can share ideas with how we do that. You know, and hopefully that that grows and continues to expand. But I, I, I think my goal right now is, is really establishing that just within our lab and then hopefully being able to branch out beyond that as a, uh, to continue to push for this. Yeah, for sure. And while we're talking about like ways to actually like take action to promote open access and things that like people can do, I wanted to point out the role of grad worker unions as a potential like avenue for promoting open access because, you know, when you form a, a union, then grad workers could, as part of their, like, bargaining with their institutions, like, demand that the institution support open access publishing or not, or no longer subscribe to these journals, like... Yeah, and I think in addition to grad grad student unions, I mean, there's postdoctoral societies within institutions, too, so kind of being on the same page there where more than one individual, uh, multiple individuals getting together can can create a stronger voice there. Right. I think one of the things that was missed in the discussion on Monday was that, like, in order to create any of these changes, there actually needs to be a lot of organizing and a lot of concerted effort among like-minded people to talk about this and to have, like, directed conversations with other people about how we can pressure institutions and the government to like make the system better while we're also you know supporting open access publishing in other ways like it actually can't just happen overnight because you have to get a lot of people on board and a lot of people moving in the same direction and you need to counteract all of those like huge monetary forces that are in play from the side of the like uh, major journals yeah, I, I completely agree. I think to switch gears a little bit, there was some discussion about um, the peer review, the peer review and publishing process itself, and uh, potential avenues towards changing how that works. Um, and I kind of there wasn't really a lot of room to discuss like how some of that might work. So I think one of the suggestions that was brought up was just putting papers in a archive like bio archive and you know allowing the research community to comment on it and doing peer review that way mm-hmm. did, did you have any thoughts about that system and how that was proposed I mean I actually liked Michael's plan right where everything is kind of out there but mm-hmm. maybe maybe the idea of of these society journals then kind of taking papers that that fit within their you know if it's neuroscience specific or genetic specific mm-hmm. right and kind of shepherding those through, because I think it, it would be really difficult to navigate, like you said, the two million papers published each year. It's yeah. difficult to navigate the research in your own subfield sometimes, yeah. right? Yeah, as it is. <laughs> yeah. So I think having, I like the idea of society journals being able to step in, and like Michael said, that could be done at a fraction of the cost of 
of uh, potentially done at a fraction of the cost of how things are currently done. I think that would allow for a more curated process, right, where you can kind of wade through some of this. Because in an ideal world, yes, you could have all the papers out and everybody would comment, but I think that's going to be challenging to implement. And you're, you, you might have a very small fraction of papers with lots of comments that are really helpful, and you're going to get a lot that really don't get anything. And mm-hmm. Two million papers is a lot to comment on. So I think curating of the papers through kind of a more traditional peer review process, I think is still really beneficial, but challenging in its own way. I mean, obviously, this is sort of some not something that's going to get resolved overnight. There's no. massive changes that need to be made and, you know, challenges to work out with respect to incentive structures and like what are appropriate incentives for peer review And like, does it make sense to have three people get to determine the fate of this research? That's that's always tough. Yeah. But I I think, you know, even even five years ago, though, I mean, I think we are moving in the right direction. Uh, In five five years ago, you did not see this many papers uh, on on something like BioArchive. Right. You Mm -hmm. you would see it from a small fraction of PIs that you know used it in one way or another. But, for example, one of the things now uh, that, you know, Bioarchive papers are indexed by PubMed, so they're they're more easily searched. So I think that adds some credibility there because that is a database backed by the NIH. You can also reference bioarchive papers in grant submissions, right? Rather than just having something like the vague in preparation, right? We always have manuscripts in preparation. <laughs> um, but you know, you can point to a physical thing, mm-hmm. well, an electronic thing <laughs> that is out there in the internet space that, that you have put together. And so I, I think that's really been beneficial for science. And I think that we just have to continue moving in that direction. Again, this is like we talked about, it's, it's, it, it's going to be a, a, a slow process. But, you know, five years ago, those weren't things that we even considered, I, that I hadn't even considered as an option, right, to put that out there. I feel like the live stream maybe ended on a bit of a pessimistic tone. But I was, you know, reflecting afterwards and thinking about, like, even in my very short career in science so far from, like, my undergraduate education in, like, 2013 to 2017 through now, that when I was in undergrad, there was not really much discussion, at least that I was aware of, about open access. It was, you know, probably, like, still there somewhere, but not nearly as mainstream, like, and it didn't have the support, I think, that yeah. as that community has grown, right? And and I think what's been really helpful is bigger names kind of leading the way in those areas, right? Oh, you know, a lot of scientists, oh, well, they're doing it. Like, it, it gives a lot of support to those types of approaches that maybe they hadn't considered before or maybe didn't think they would benefit their career as well. And now they're starting to see a benefit from that. So I think that's, that. It, yeah, it's certainly a promising uh Uh, step in the right direction. It's kind of fun to think about like, how would you do it differently? And how like, because there's a lot of possibilities for how science could be done and how like research findings could be shared. That's not what we currently have. Yeah. So I don't know if you like had any other thoughts or brainstorming about like, how it could be done differently. I mean, I think emphasizing science for the sake of science, not not and and doing rigorous science that is backed up, not who has the most money to throw at the problem, 
Um, but really taking a step back and, and thinking about important questions and creative approaches, right? It doesn't always need to involve more money, um, it, but it should involve good ideas, right? And, and the, the rush and, and the rat race of publishing and grants, I think, diminishes that a little bit, that you spend so much time doing that there's, not, uh, there's less time to think. And, and I think that, you know, not having to reformat a paper 10 different times, right? That the, the, when you're doing that during, during uh, a submission is, it takes a lot out of, of, of science and, and of actually doing that, of, of, of answering the next question. And, and one of the things we've run into is, is it, I, I certainly value peer review, right? It, 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 it challenges how you, it can challenge how you think and, and come up with really other ways to kind of back up your data. Um, but, you know, in, in my short experience, it, it, it has not once changed a fundamental conclusion of a paper. I think it has made, it has almost always made the, actually in every case, it has made the paper better. But at the end of the day, the, the, the main findings in general were the same. And I think we need to balance that. We're, yes, we want to make the paper better, but, but more is not always better, right? And I think um, we talked a little bit about this, and Michael mentioned it too, that, but the, sometimes, uh, you, you know, at different tiers of journals, that, that it's almost felt like you're jumping through hoops for the sake of clearing some bar to get into that journal. Um, you know, whether that's with a new sophisticated imaging technique or something like that, 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 that oh, oh, well, you're okay, you, you can get in now. Just because we did more doesn't really, it, it didn't necessarily advance science. And I think that's, that, that can be unfortunate. So, yeah, I think that's a good point to bring up is just doing it for the sake of being flashier, which does, like you said, doesn't necessarily advance the science and also makes it so that if you don't have access to the things that you would need to make it flashier, the money, the equipment, whatever, then you're just kind of like, SOL. Then you have to spend time going to a different journal and reformatting everything. And yeah, which is a headache for sure. Something I'm planning to do, and this is a, a fun little teaser, maybe for the upcoming things on this on the podcast, is I feel like the live stream on Monday and this conversation have been a pretty good like diagnosis of where we're at mm -hmm. and a little bit of discussion on some ideas to like move it forwards. And I think probably the next step is then going out and talking to people who actually have like a lot of expertise in like the, how do we move this forwards and how do we get people on board? So like talking to organizers, talking to people who do like open source programming, talking to people. You mentioned like, like workers unions, right? Yeah. There's a template. People have, have confronted these problems, right? In, in other areas. Yeah. And it, it, they were different problems, but they're similar, right? They're, they're technically different, but yeah. um, there's a lot of people with expertise in, in kind of moving in that direction. And I think involving them or, or maybe even just looking to what they've done, right? How they've implemented some of these changes, I, I think is also important going forward. Yeah. How do you implement massive changes like this? How do you get people on board? I mean, I think sometimes we can fall into the trap in like academia of thinking that like, 
we're so different from everybody else, right? Like other things don't apply to us when, and we have to reinvent the wheel, right? Um, but you look or you look around and take a moment and realize like, oh, no, actually a lot of people have expertise and knowledge in this area that maybe we lack because we're so like hyper-focused on like a very specific area of what we're doing. And and because they're, they're, there's a lot of push to always do more, it's, yeah. it's hard to take that time, right? Like to, to set aside time to do these things um, when you're, you know, scrambling to do a thousand other things. Yeah, academics are always asked to do more with less. And so at some point, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and you're like, yes, I, I, I want to do this as well, but I have to make sure I take care of these other things so that I can keep doing those things, right? That's an exciting thing to look forward to is future conversations with people inside of academia and outside of academia who can offer more insights into how to push things forward and move more in the direction of open source publishing. Um, another thing I, I wanted to add germane to the like first thing we started out with about like you do need to be focused somewhat on your career mm-hmm. and on, you know, also on helping your trainees establish their careers is that like at the end of the road of like, you know, you just don't have to play the game is you might not get to do science anymore, Yeah. which, you know, then you don't have that. And then you can't continue to have an impact. Right. However little, like if we all do our part, I think that that can really help move things in the right direction. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's worth pointing out that there, there are real stakes and it's not to say that, you know, obviously people, we, we should be advocating for open science and pushing things in that direction and doing what we can, but like, it does not come without risks. And I think that's worth acknowledging. Yeah. Yeah. That's a balance, right? Yeah. To strike a balance, especially at an early career stage, I think trainees and PIs, right? Alike. Right. It's a lot more, it's, it's very tenuous and it's a lot more tenuous now than I think when like Michael was, you know, going through, like, obviously it's always been challenging too. Yes. It is very difficult to, to rise to the top of, or, you know, you're competing against some of the most brilliant people around. Right. And they're trying to distinguish yourself amongst that is, is, is difficult. Right. And, and to continue to do so. Right. You can't just rest on your laurels either. What have you done recently? So, I, yeah, that is difficult. Yeah. Now, there's it's even more challenging. There's even more competition and just about the same number of like tenure track for like faculty. Yeah, medical positions. schools are growing, but so are so so is graduate school yeah. enrollment, right? And 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 there's a finite number of positions and and makes it difficult, yes. Well, I'm not sure if you had any other thoughts that you wanted to throw in here at the end. I want I I want to leave on a I'm eternally optimistic, right? So, look, sure, it's not perfect, but we're going. We'll we we will get there. Yeah, we'll band together. We'll figure this out. It's not an insurmountable problem. Um, yeah, you can't be overly optimistic about how quickly we can get there, and it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of input from a lot of like diverse voices who have a lot of different ideas about how to get there and a lot of different like interests and and you know things that you know maybe one person hasn't thought about there's no one answer to this right it's just that's like you said a multifaceted problem so right so we, we can't you know just think that we can snap our fingers but 
it's also not helpful to say like everything's going poorly and nothing could ever possibly go well and it's an insurmountable problem that we can't ever solve that's never a helpful mindset to have (laughs) science i mean the scientific field is is full of creative original thinkers who are not afraid to push the balance but we need to give them incentive to do that right they're doing that every day with their research and i think they're they're there is a lot of interest in doing these things. We just, if we have a plan in place, I think you'd see a lot of people um, hopefully make their voices heard on that and and come to the table with different ideas. But we we have to figure out we have to have a table to come yeah. to, right? And, you know, and make it so that it's not just all the same voices that are always at these metaphorical tables at the table, because that's not really going to yield us. A different yeah. it might just be a different version of the same thing we have right? yeah and that yeah yeah that's not really a future of science that's actually going to like evolve and right change right you want something that's going to adapt right sure what we implement and say okay we get this done in 2025 well is that still going to be sustainable in 2050 or are we going to look back and say man what were they doing that <laughs> right you want something that's going to continue to move with the time and times and that's going to be an ongoing challenge right and but i i think the scientific community is up to it um we all recognize i think we all most of us recognize the problem so now we just have to come together to solve it yeah i think that's it that's actually a great way to end it once again we've been talking with brian kopitz as a follow-up to the open science roundtable In Plain English will return on Tuesday, April 4th uh, with another full-length episode. We'll be back to actually talking about a scientific paper, so please stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PlainEnglishSci. That's P-L-A-I-N-E-N-G-L-I-S-H-S-C-I. You can find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash at PlainEnglishSci, where you can find the original unabridged live stream in addition to uh, future uploads of our past episode catalog that will be posted to YouTube coming up here in the following weeks. Additionally, you can visit our website at inplainenglishpod.org to find all of the past episodes, the papers we have discussed, and the episode transcripts. Again, that's inplainenglishpod.org. You can also find the link to join our Discord community there. Thank you once again for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of In Plain English.